I'm the Dean here at the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida, and I'm your host for Be Transfigured Ministries. Welcome back to another live Bible study on the book of 1 Corinthians, inspired by the homilies of St. John Chrysostom. It has been a few weeks since we've been together, since our last Bible study between my travel schedule and a hurricane, go, go figure, we had to cancel a couple of sessions. However, we're back tonight. So yay, we're back, yay. Uh, that's the good news. Uh, the not as good news is this is our only Bible study for the entire month of October. Next week I'm traveling again. And then the week after, Our Lady's Philoptical Society is having the rummage sale, which is taking over this entire room in terms of setup and things. So our next Bible study after tonight will be the first Monday in November, which is the, the what? Tuesday. Tuesday the what? The first Tuesday in November. What did I say? The first, the first Tuesday in November. Thank you very much. That's why my wife is here, to keep me on the level path, okay? So, um, real quick. So if you're new to our Bible study, let me share with you how it works. I said this was inspired by the homilies of St. John Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom, when he was a priest in Antioch, this was before he was the Patriarch of Constantinople, he taught a Bible study on 1 Corinthians. We think it was in the year somewhere around 385 AD. And so what we do is we using, now they're called homilies, but they're really Bible studies. And following that, what we do is we read the scripture and then St. John Chrysostom brings us through a traditional chapter verse analysis. And so what I've done in our study guide is I tell you where in the homily you can find, and I've pulled out some quotes that help us have an understanding of the thematic material uh, in the chapter verse textual analysis. Then St. John Chrysostom always has a what I call life application or some moral teaching, and not to have any kind of spoiler alert, but here's a spoiler alert. Tonight is one of those times where he does not have a teaching section. So we'll get to that as we get through. Uh, and then we finish uh, off with what I call the send off, which is a way to send us into our life hopefully inspired to live a new life in Christ. So tonight's uh, Bible study is session 20, which is homily 19, okay? On the study guide, there is a link to the homily, so you can print that if you want, put it in a notebook, you can. The homilies are all public domain after so many years, so there's nothing illegal about printing them and copying them. I hand them out for everybody here in person. And then uh, if you haven't gotten your study guide yet, go there real quickly to our website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org slash Bible-studies, and you'll see there session 20. There's the link for the study guide. There's also a link for the video, but if you're watching this video, you already found the video, so it doesn't really matter. Speaking of video, if you are watching on the YouTube platform, it doesn't work if you're watching on the website, it doesn't work if you're watching on Facebook, you have to be watching on the YouTube platform. They're having a hard time hearing me? Is that better? Because I see a big, huge green line over here saying that uh, I'm very loud. So let me see if I can't raise my volume. 
See, my, my sound technician is not here tonight, so let's see if I can't raise my volume. Is that better? All right, let me see if that's a little bit better. Check one, two, check, check, check. Check one, two, check. Okay, tell me if that's better, Pastor Dad. I should hear about two or three seconds. Oh, they'll let me know then. Okay, where was I? Oh, so speaking of Presbyteria, so if you're watching on the YouTube platform, there is an online chat room moderated by Presbyteria Vasi. Now, Presbyteria, for those of you who have never met her, has the same theological education that I have. Okay? But her degree is in church service. Mine is in being a priest. So, well, we had the same theological classes. She didn't have to be burdened with how to swing a censer, how to dunk babies. So the, those extra classes we take as seminarians. But otherwise, but as you said, some people don't realize that about her, has the exact same education as I do from the seminary. So she's moderating the chat room. And... They have their own little chat going on. I think a few weeks ago you were online instead of, instead of here, right? And they're, they're cracking jokes and they're asking questions and she's having her own little Bible study because it's just a wonderful opportunity. But if there's a question that comes through the, through the chat room, but as Vitera can offer it into the microphone so we can bring the question here, maybe I can address it and we can all benefit from that. So all of you have microphones in front of you. The way that works is when it's your turn to read or to ask a question, the microphone, bring it up to your, about this close to your face, um, because the closer it is, the less of the echo from the room it picks up, okay? But that way, whoever's watching online can hear your question, can hear your reading, and they are edified from that as well. Um, but is it, did I miss anything else? Okay, so turn your microphone on, tell us who's on from uh, online. As far as I can tell, we have, sorry, I had a cough drop in my mouth in case you're wondering why Father is laughing on the screen. Um, we have Denise from Virginia, and we have Philip from Macedonia. It says there are seven people watching. I'm not sure who everybody else is. But so far, two people have checked in. Do I have a volunteer to read all of that? My microphone was off, so nobody heard a thing that I just said. Are you serious? Yep. That's okay. Liz from Illinois. <laughs> Hello, Liz from Illinois. I turned my microphone off when you told us who was online. So everything's from there, nobody heard. So... They're hearing me now because I just looked up and saw that my microphone was off, so I turned my microphone back on. I do that because if I'm on and you're on, there's the, both microphones pick it up, so I try to keep it uh, as, little, uh, as little echo as possible. So, I'm not going to bother repeating anything I just said. We're just going to go on. <laughs> All right, do I have a volunteer to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 9? Do I have a volunteer? All right, thanks, Vasily. Move the microphone good and close to you. Concerning marriage, what a nice topic. Now, concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the, effect, the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for, for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say, this is a concession, not as a, as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, and one in this manner, and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But 
If they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> so. Was that? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Um, so this this it's not the lightest of thematic material but it's incredibly important and you're going to laugh of the very first point i have on the study guide is saint paul takes a break from the stern tone and settles in for advice on marriage remember the stuff that he's just done up to this point has really been strict and stern on the people and now he's going to take a step back and just go i'm going to give you some advice on marriage Right? Now remember, we, we, we mentioned this, I think, two Bible studies ago. According to evidence, this is the second letter he actually sent to them. Right? There's that third letter into the Corinthians that we've lost. But since he referenced it earlier in, the, in, this, in this letter, so what we call 1 Corinthians, we think it's probably actually the second letter he sent to them. So we don't know if this topic came up before or whatever, but... Um, it suffices to say now he's going to settle in for some good marriage advice. So listen to what Krishnasam says here. By the way, if you're following in the homily, you see in the text, the text analysis on the study guide, I have section numbers. That's merely so you can find the quote within the homily if you choose. Okay? Uh, and again, the homilies are not always easy reading, but they're valuable reading. Sometimes I have to read it two or three times to get the thought because Christmastime sometimes gets very deep. So to help you find the quotes that I'm pulling out, you'll see I have section numbers which match up to what the editor has done. Christmastime didn't have these numbers. The editors have given us these numbers. So it matches the editor's section numbers in the homily so you can find them, okay? So in section one of the homily, quote number one, and he interposes some exhortation and advice about marriage and virginity, giving the hearers some respite from more unpleasant subjects. See, Bill, you were worried about this being the unpleasant subject. This is the, this is the less unpleasant subject. <laughs> now, neither one of these guys were married, right? <laughs> That's correct. They were both celibate. <laughs> okay. So point number two. St. Paul had received their questions. This is an important thing. So this is, again, helping us realize that this is a relationship that St. Paul has with this community. He's not randomly just sending them stuff. Right? He's responding to questions they had submitted. Okay. Uh, Chrysostom says this, Wherefore, he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, for they had written to him, where it was right to abstain from one's wife or not, and writing back the, in answer to this and giving rules about marriage, he introduces also the discourse concerning virginity. So immediately now we see this beautiful relationship developing between St. Paul and the people. And I'm going to extend that to say, and St. Paul and Chrysostom and us. Now we're in a relationship. Because I mentioned this before, I didn't mention it during the intro. So, John, since you're new to our Bible study, I'll, I'll just kind of touch base with it. Why are we studying 1 Corinthians? Well, first of all, practically speaking, it's the next Bible in my Bible study series. That was the easiest, easiest way. <laughs> But the benefit for us is that the first century Corinthians, the city of Corinth was very much like our contemporary American society. It was highly educated, it was wealthy, it was multicultural, and it had a lot of divisions within it. Not just the Christian church, but the city of Corinth. Conveniently for us, St. John Chrysostom in the late 300s in Antioch, Antioch like contemporary America, very wealthy, very cosmopolitan, very multicultural, very highly educated, and very fragmented. So it's a very beautiful opportunity for us to gather some, some relationship benefits. So we see how the Christians in Corinth responded, 
and how they talked about unity and they talked about the important topics, how Christendom dealt with it in the 300s and how we're dealing with it today. So there's a benefit there. So Christendom points out that St. Paul had a relationship with the Corinthians. I'm going to suggest because of our willingness to study, we now are being brought into that relationship. Because St. Paul's not just speaking to the Corinthians. St. John Christum is not just speaking to his people in Antioch, but they're both now also speaking to us. So we're now part of that relationship. And so when we read the scriptures, it's good for us to read it from that context. It's not a benefit to just read it as if it's some book from above. St. Paul had reasons he addressed certain topics. He didn't just sit down, hmm, what shall I write? Oh, let me talk about marriage to them. You know, St. <laughs> Paul wasn't Greek. <laughs> okay. All right. So point number three here is that uh, a historical context Again, this is a historical context. What I'm going to offer you now is from the late 300s. Some believed that this was meant for clergy, but Chrysostom believed it was for all people. Marriage is a blessing. So listen to what Chrysostom says here. Some indeed say that this discourse was addressed by him to priests, but I, judging from what follows, could not affirm that it was so, since he would not have given his advice in general terms. Now, the reason I include that historical context into our study guide is, again, to help us see what did people think the scriptures had to do with, right? So it gives us a glimpse. In the late 300s, there must have been some people suggesting that this passage on marriage was just addressed to priests. And Christism is saying, that can't be because if it was just for priests, St. Paul would not have addressed it to the general population. Right? Keep in mind, when he addresses Timothy about proper behavior of a bishop, he addresses bishops directly. Right? And so here's that great context. You say, you know, what does it mean? Who are we to say what it means? Here's Chrysostom telling us, no, it can't be written just for priests because St. Paul addresses the people he's speaking to, right? And so I throw that in there to help us see the context um, uh, that, we're, that we're seeing from across generations. Okay, section two in the homily, point number four. Our bodies are not our own. We were married. Our spouse has a say in our choice. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. Now, what is the meaning of due honor? The wife has not power over her own body, but is both the slave and the mistress of the husband. And if you decline the service which is due, you have offended God. Now, that's a pretty harsh thing to say. Huh? Now, we have to remember the context for St. Paul, right? is there's a duality of responsibility here. He doesn't leave it as just women, your body is not your own. Yeah, some people stop reading there. Okay. They, they forget the rest of the... Right. And so this is just the example that, look, in marriage, my body, whether I'm the male or I'm the female, my body is not my own. I have entered into this relationship called marriage, and therefore the spouse has a say, okay, even in the sexual relationship, okay? And so, yes, this is, you know, and these are the, least, these are the less uncomfortable topics for the Corinthians to be talking about, right? Okay, number five, equality is the power of marriage. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. But in this place, we hear no more of greater and less, but it is one and the same right. Now, why is this? Because his speech was about chastity. In all of the things, says he, let the husband have the prerogative, but not so where the question is about chastity. 
The husband has no power over his own body, neither the wife. There is great equality of honor and no prerogative. Okay, there has to be, and you've heard me say, if you've been to weddings that I've performed, right? Marriage is not 50-50 in the church. It is 100%, 100%. We each completely sacrifice to the other, right? And so I, I love this distinction, and this is why there's a whole separate section now on marriage and chastity and virginity, because what's Chris as I'm saying? You have obligations to each other, and because you have obligations to each other, you are both in this together. Neither one of you has the prerogative, okay? And I think that's an important thing for us, especially in our sex-crazed world that we find ourselves in. Every, every time you turn, turn the channel, everything, everything's about sex anymore, right? So this is a good topic for us locally, anyway. All right, section number three in the homily. Sexual passion is a very powerful temptation. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. Because great evils spring from this sort of continence. For adulteries and fornications and the ruins of family have often arisen from hence. For if when men have their own wives they commit fornication, much more if you defraud them of this consolation. So... <laughs> In essence, what he's saying is, is, look, if men have affairs when women don't say no to them, this is just how tempting the sexual passions are. And now keep in mind that what he's referencing uh, is when St. When Paul says, do not deprive one another except for consent for a time. Right? And so, again, in that mutual understanding to where the, each of the spouses agree to a small time limitation because otherwise the passion takes over. This is what Chrysostom is saying here. That's how powerful the temptation is. Okay? Well, your microphone was not on, so I'll have to repeat your question. That question was, is the small time for a Lenten period? Well, Chris, Paul, St. Paul says for prayer and fasting. Okay, it could be, hey, we're going through something, let's agree to have this, these three days, this one day, whatever it is. The key is the mutual understanding and for something greater, right? You're not just cutting each other off for the sake of cutting each other off. You're cutting each other off for prayer and fasting because that's just how powerful this temptation is, okay? Just on a side note, I remember years and years and years ago, I heard a Protestant preacher say, all right, moms and dads, send your kids into the other room. <laughs> and, and he said, and I don't... I, I understand, he's saying, he's addressing this, he says, okay, because let's face it, the vast majority of adultery is the husband doing something outside of marriage, although not exclusive, that's the, that's the majority of it. This pastor said, women, if you want to guarantee that your husband never fools around, never say no. Now, I think that's too simplistic of an answer but what his point was that affairs begin in that sexual void. And that's what Chrysostom is saying, right? If men who are not rejected by their wives have affairs, how much more does it happen when wives say, nope, not for you, right? And so we have to understand that there's this mutual honor that has to take place. Otherwise, it's just oppression, and the church does not uh, endorse oppression. Okay, point number seven. Chastity by choice is not as tempting. Listen to what Christum says here. For that one should practice continence against the will of the other is defrauding, but not so with the other's consent. Any more than I count myself defrauded, if after persuading me you take anything away... Uh, away anything of mine. 
since only he defrauds who takes against another's will and by force. So in other words, this mutual acceptance, it's easier to remain pure when it's done with free will, right? And this is why, so if the two of them, this is why St. Paul says prayer and fasting. If the husband and a wife mutually agree to this short period of time so they can pray and fast, the chances that that's going to be overwhelming are less because they're not being forced into it. They're not being forced into the chastity, okay? And so chastity by choice is not as tempting. Point number eight, chastity for intense prayer is not the same as regular prayer. Now here's, Chris is not making some distinctions here. It is prayer with unusual earnestness, which he here means. For if he is forbidding those who have intercourse with one another to pray, how could, pr how could pray without ceasing have any place? It is possible then to live with a wife and yet give heed unto prayer. But by con con continence, prayer is made more perfect. Right? So that intensity of prayer, that special prayer, as opposed to just, nope, I'm praying. That's not the context that St. Paul has here. Because as far as St. Paul's concerned, we're supposed to be continually praying. Okay? There are um, some people that will say, well, we should be ch chased um, three days before communion, three days after communion, all these other, they throw in all these other re limitations. Are we, can we talk about that for a little bit too, in the sense of... So the question is about sexual relations in relation to Holy Communion. Now, I will tell you, again, through mutual agreement, a husband and a wife can and should come up with a plan. But that plan is not forced on them by the church. There is no such rule of three days before and three days after. I will give you a real-life example. The marriage service used to be a divine liturgy. Today it's not a liturgy, and instead of Holy Communion, it's just blessed wine. But originally, the marriage service was in the context of the divine liturgy, right? So what does the bride and groom during the, doing, do during the divine liturgy? They receive communion. And what does every bride and groom do on their wedding night? <laughs> so, if the church expected no sex three days before or three days after Holy Communion, the wedding would never be a divine liturgy. Could you put your microphone and bring it good and close to you. I, I, def I see what you're saying. There's definitely no realistic commandment to fast, whether from food or intercourse or anything in, within the context of marriage, after communion, because that would be silly. It's like saying after communion, you're supposed to then fast for a day. It doesn't make any sense. So, but isn't there a canon that says that you are supposed to fast I mean, it goes, it goes along with the fasting of food prior to communion. I think there's a canon, a canon, I don't know it, but I think there's a canon that touches on it specifically for priests, and then there's something else to be, that's said about laity. But, I mean, it, I think it makes sense. If we're going to fast from food the night before we take communion, it only makes sense to fast from what is more pleasurable than food. You see what I'm saying? But not after. I mean, after doesn't make sense to me. Do you see what I'm saying? Turn the microphone. I, I see what you're saying, but the, the truth is there is no prohibition to sexual relations in marriage. Now, again, if a husband and a wife, for the purposes of growing spiritually, maybe through the advice of their spiritual father or whatever, say, you know what, 
We're going to abstain from sex on Saturday nights so that we can prepare in a special way for Holy Communion. That's totally within the characteristic of what St. Paul's writing here, okay? That it's mutually agreed to, it's for a short period of time, and it's for prayer and fasting, okay? But there is no prohibition in marriage to say, nope, you can't have sex before Holy Communion, okay? Because that's just, there, there's no... There's no historical content. Now, that's not to say there are not priests who say you shouldn't have sex before Holy Communion. You know, there are plenty of variety of, you know, I've heard one that's, you know, not seven days, not this, not that. My point is, is that when you look at the historical continuity of the church, when we are receiving communion every single Sunday, okay, then how would, a, how would a child ever be born if the St. Basil says, receive communion every Sunday, every Wednesday, and every other day that it is offered? So if St. Basil is telling us to take communion as often as possible, how could there be a prohibition to sex? Then you're saying, okay, so you can have sex with your wife, you're cutting yourself off from Holy Communion? The church wouldn't say that. Okay, I'm saying these are the indications that those prohibitions are not in the original character of the church. Yes, there are spiritual fathers who tell their spiritual children you should not have sex before Holy Communion or what have you. But that is in the context of a mutually agreed to relationship, right? The spiritual father relationship is not forced upon people. It's freely accepted and freely given. So we have to see that context. If the original context of the church is to be receiving communion as often as possible, then where's the practical side of then there be no children left, right? Now keep in mind, St. Paul says, if you're strong enough to remain even as I am, to remain celibate, okay, that's a, a loftier goal in St. Paul's mind, right? But he says, but that's really dangerous. Better to get married than to fall and burn in passion, right? So that's the context of all that. Time. Was there something from the chat room you wanted to share? Denise um, posted that it was the 69th Apostolic Canon, the 5th and the 13th Canon of St. Timothy, the 13th Canon of the Ecumenical Council. She wasn't sure if those were the right canons about this topic. I don't either. I will say that... There is a canon that says fast before Holy Communion, okay? However, the context there is the day of Holy Communion. Okay? It doesn't say three days, five days, ten days, or what have you. Now, having said all that, in 2016 at the Great Council in Crete, the church said, while there is no requirement for the three-day fast, those who wish to follow it, we shall not forbid them. Okay, and again, there's that voluntary aspect to it. We're here talking about compelling, right? He says, don't force your wife, don't force your husband, mutually agreed to. There's less temptation if you're doing it, even if you want to say, you know what, all 57 days of the great fast, we're not going to have sex as a husband and a wife. If that's what the husband and a wife say is their goal for the purposes of their spiritual growth, there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? That's the context here, is the forced versus the free will. Okay. Um, next point, point number nine. Talking about commandments. St. Paul gives advice, but not a commandment about marriage. Right? So here's, Christum says this. Do you see the strong sense of Paul, how he both signifies that continence is better and yet puts no force on the person who cannot attain to it, fearing lest some offense arise? Right? So St. Paul saying, look, I'm not going to give you a commandment. I'm going to give you some advice. This is a better way to look at life, but I'm not telling you it's a law. I'm merely giving you some spiritual advice here, right? And keep in mind that St. Paul is all about, you know, 
free will and all that kind of thing. So I think it's a beautiful context that he has that he has in there. Okay, let's move on to the second section in the chapter, verses 10 through 16. Who wants to read? Okay, put your microphone good and close to you, press the button, give it about two seconds to filter through. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean. But now they are holy, but if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So, section number four in the homily, point number ten. Sometimes marriages end, but that is not the desire. We need to do whatever we can to avoid divorce, right? It's an unfortunate reality, but it should never be the, the goal, obviously. Here's what Chris Azam says here. Here, seeing that both on the score of continence and other pretexts, and because of infirmities of temper, it fell out that separations took place. It were better, he says, that such things should not be at all. But, however, if they take place, let the wife remain with her husband, if not to, not, if not to cohabitate with him, yet so as not to introduce any other to be her husband. That's an interesting connection there, right? So. He's saying they're better live as brother and sister, you know, at least remain somehow together. But then he says, look, if it has to happen, it has to happen. But it should definitely be, we fight against it. But sometimes it happens. We all know that. Point number 11. Marriage brings others to holiness because of hope of salvation. Listen to what Chrysostom says here. Well, it is one body. Nevertheless, she becomes not unclean, but the cleanness of the wife overcomes the uncleanness of the husband. And again, the cleanness of the believing husband overcomes the uncleanness of the unbelieving wife. Now then, in this case, is the uncleanness overcome, and therefore the intercourse allowed. While in the woman who prostitutes herself, the husband is not condemned in casting her... The husband is not condemned in casting her out because here there is hope that the lost member may be saved through the marriage. But in the other case, the marriage has already been dissolved and there again both are corrupted. But here the fault is in, only, in one only of the two. So it gets a little confusing there. He's, he's bringing in prostitution, okay? But the, the difference between prostitution is that there's no marriage there. So that should be always rejected and cast off. His point here is that in marriage, if we find ourselves where our spouse maybe has a change of faith or a change in this, where next thing you know, what started as a marriage is no longer, you know, two faithful Christians or whatever the case might be. The point is, look, try to stick through that because you might save the other person still, okay? It's not the same as if you're with some kind of random person. Now keep in mind, and I think, uh, oh, this is the next point, so I'll, I'll just save it here for the next, I'll save my comment for the next point. Does that make sense, everybody was saying there? Okay, so point number 12 then, Christians can only marry Christians from the start. This is what I was about to say. For the question now is not about those who have never yet come together, but about those who are already joined. He did not say, if one wished to take an unbelieving wife, but 
if one has an unbelieving wife, which means if any after marrying or being married have received the word of godliness and then the other party which is continued in unbelief still yearn for them to dwell together, let not the marriage be broken off. Okay, so that's a beautiful pastoral reality. Chrysostom is pointing out and making it very clear. If you're not already married, you're not allowed to marry an unbeliever. If you're already married and something changes, feel free to remain married. Now, practically, what that also means, and it's not quite written this way, but this is the truth of it, this really affects people who come to orthodoxy already married. Okay, so let's say someone comes and says, you know what, I want to be orthodox, and my spouse is an atheist. The church is not going to force that person to get divorced in order to join the church because there's already a marriage in place. That's what Chrysostom is saying here. But if I'm already orthodox, the church will not allow me to marry an atheist. That's the distinction. If I'm already married and things arise, well, let's see if we can't stick together and make this thing work because maybe my joining the church might save the atheist. I don't know yet, right? But if I'm already, if I'm not, if I'm not already married, there's a certain level of expectation there within the church. And that was the reality, keep in mind, you know, people were coming to the church when, when St. Paul was writing to the Corinthians, people were coming fully grown to the church already in marriages with children and this and that and the other thing. So there was, there was no context of not, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, not understanding the, the passion and not understanding the life there. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Verses 17 through 24. Who wants to read 17 through 24 for me? Okay. Bring the microphone good and close to you, John. But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not, I'm sorry, become Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is a Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were brought at a price. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Okay, thank you. So, you're okay. No, you're, uh, the, <laughs> this is, this is a little bit touchy, you know, just, just because of the language that he has here about slavery and things like that. So let's, let's walk through St. Saint, Saint John Christum and then maybe make things will be a little bit more clear. So, section 5 in the homily, point number 13. Slavery versus freedom is not more of a spiritual burden as circumcision. Astonishing, Chrysostom says. Where has he put slavery? 
as circumcision profits not, and uncircumcision does not does no harm, so neither does slavery nor yet liberty. Now, that is a very profound statement, right? Just as circumcision profits not, uncircumcision does no harm, so neither does slavery nor yet liberty. So obviously we've got to dig into this. What exactly is Chrysostom and St. Paul talking about? Are we suggesting as so many did for so many years that slavery is not a bad thing? That's not what is being said here. So let's walk through this. Point number 14. Real slavery comes from passions. Chrysostom. But how is the slave a free man while continuing a slave? When he is freed from passions and the diseases of the mind, when he looks down upon riches and wrath and all other the like passions, right? So the real slavery, from Chrysostom's point of view, isn't the indentured work that is going on in the cultural society, but the slavery to the passions. That's what does the harm. Okay, that's how you can be a freed man and still a slave, right? Not that slavery is not a bad thing. So this is the, the, context, the context here. Point number, uh, point number 15, section 6 in the homily. Slavery does not hurt us. But if it is impossible for one who is a slave to be a Christian such as he ought to be, the Greeks will condemn true religion of great weakness, whereas if they can be taught that slavery in no way impairs godliness, they will admire our doctrine. For if death hurts us not, nor scourges, nor chains, much less slavery, fire and iron and tyrannies innumerable, and diseases and poverty and wild beasts and countless things more deadly than these, have not been able to injure the faithful. Nay, they have made them even mightier. And how shall slavery be able to hurt? So that's the context here. He's talking about our souls. He's not talking about our political freedom or our physical being beaten by the owner, right? Now, just so we understand, the concept of slavery has changed over the centuries, okay? The term slavery is not um, homogenous across all eras of human history. There was a very popular form of slavery, servanthood, where you could actually sell yourself into servitude, okay? This is not the same thing as being captured in the field and being chained and being dragged to the auction block and being sold. It's two totally different kinds of slavery, okay? I might suggest, and I might get in trouble here, but I'm going to say it anyway, that minimum wage is slavery because it is a chaining in a way, but what happens? People voluntarily place themselves in work situations that they can't get out of because of their, whether they've put themselves into debt or this or that or the other thing, right? Where they've created, that they've sold themselves into a situation that they can't escape. They're not being beaten. They're not being, you know, but minimum wage is a form of slavery because you can't escape that. You can't, you can't live a fruitful life on minimum wage. I don't care what minimum wage is, whether it's $1 or $15 or $25, minimum wage by definition is constricting. No, you have to leave it. Okay, but my point is, you, you, my point is that it like so in the ancient when I'm saying you can sell yourself as a servant in the olden days, you can get out of that too. That wasn't forced upon you. You voluntarily brought yourself under someone's power. 
okay? You, you can say like, what, what do they call it? Um, I love watching Downton Abbey, right? They're in service. They live their entire lives totally virtually chained to the stove, even though they're getting paid or what have you, but they can't free themselves from that in that particular class situation or whatever. That's what I'm talking about. That's, now, it's not the same kind of slavery as what happened in the American South where the Africans were brought over from this and sold in the auction block. Totally different kind of slavery. We're not talking about the, you know, the Jews were slaves to the Egyptians. Totally different kind of slavery. The term, I'm saying, is not homogenous across the eras of human history. What else you wanted to say for that? In business, as long as I have, there are people that come in, and when they accept and they put their signature on, on the uh, application, they've accepted the wage that comes along with it. They are not necessarily enslaved to that because they can work by learning a different position, by getting promoted, and by growing within the company. And of course, their salary and their hourly wage increases with each step that they take upwards. So, I mean, I understand what you're saying as far as somebody that doesn't have the initiative nor the drive to better themselves. Yeah, they are, they are a slave to that stove, okay? They're gonna sit there and they're gonna be making pizzas day in and day out and they're happy as a pig in slop. And that's exactly that's what I'm talking about. The only way to get out of that is to remove yourself from the minimum wage system by getting a certificate or getting a this, getting a that, where you can move into something. So we're saying the same thing. Correct. Again, it's not compulsory, but it's not freeing either. Yeah. Yes, Presidenta. There are some people who become slaves by um, working paycheck to paycheck. Meaning they can make hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they spend it as fast as they make it or they have so much debt, they're not free. So you could become a slave just by your lifestyle choice, not because of anything else. You do it to yourself. You enslave yourself to those bills that, that come in. Correct. But, and, the, and, and, and again, I think the point that Chris Islam is making here is that the real slavery is in the passions. The real slavery isn't in the state of your work situation, right? I'm a big fan of Dave Ramsey, and he always says, right, this, you know, the man is slave, the, the, the debtor is slave, whatever, that debt is slavery. Because even if you're making $100,000 a year, if you are totally consumed in debt, you are a slave to that job because you can't stand up for yourself, you can't better yourself because if you say one bad thing, you're out of a job, now you're on the street because you're in debt and all that kind of thing. So that's that kind of slavery that says it doesn't matter of how much money it is. My point is, in the, this context, when we see this term slavery, we, we're not talking about the American South African enslaved peoples on the auction block. That's not what's always talked about every time you see the word slavery, number one. Number two, when Chrysostom says slavery doesn't hurt us, he's not talking about our freedom to move around. He's not talking about our financial position. He's talking about it can't hurt us as Christians because that's just another physical thing that we got to deal with. That's his point here. Did you have something you wanted to add to that before we move on? Uh, just that the word slavery in our language, in our contemporary culture, has such a negative connotation that when we see it, it's scandalizing when we see it used in this way in the scripture because we automatically have thoughts in the back of our mind about what he means. But if you look at the Greek, it's the word doulos, which we translate as servant all the time. So, and Dulia is work, right? So it's the same root. So a servant is a slave, is a worker. Like, think about a butler. A butler lives on the property of the master. He calls his master master, and he waits on him hand and foot. But he's always dressed really nice. He eats really well, and he has a nice bed. So there are, throughout history, like you said, different levels and, and contexts of what slavery is. If we take it with the connotation that we think of as Americans with our history, then this whole thing is, you know, what can we say? But if we acknowledge the 
variation in the realities of servanthood, whether it's indentured servitude or being a butler or being a, a kidnapped slave, there's, there's a difference. And I think, though, even if we were talking about the slaves in the American South, who, of course, what was done to them is unjust and, and horrible, even they would have, having read this or having been preached this, they could still gain from that the same insights. They could still, you know, be a good servant, acknowledging what the reality of their situation is. And it's all a spiritual thing. It's not a worldly thing. It doesn't have to do with all of that. You see what I'm saying? Now I'm starting to... In, in fact, that's exactly what takes place in the American South in, what, in the music world today. It's called the Negro Spirituals. These are all the slave songs. And all the slave songs acknowledge their freedom in God. They, they, yes, they were physically in chains, but they were not spiritually in chains. And you see a lot of that in their cultural expressions, in their music and in their songs, in the hope for the salvation and the hope for something better to come, right? All these slave songs are spiritual songs of, of heaven. Yeah, they know they're being enslaved now, but in their soul, it's just a chain. It's not, it's not holding them down. And so this is what Chris is saying here. It's the passions that enslave us. The free, wealthy man is totally enslaved to his wealth, as opposed to the poor person who is not enslaved to wealth at all, but might be enslaved to some other kind of passion. Okay? All right. Now, the last section, we're going to run a little late tonight. I hope that's okay. So, verses 25 through 40. Who wants to read the last section of the chapter for us? Okay, thank you. 25 through 40, the rest of the chapter. Now, concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. Yet, I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away. Still going, right? But I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, that I may not put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. Then, so then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. All right, that's a long section. Um, huh? It's my opinion. But I think, but I think I have the, the, the mind of the Lord, right? Okay, so... This is in section 7 of the homily. So just two points here to bring, to bring to our attention. Marriage versus virginity is a choice. Again, there's that freedom in that choice. 
But still with all this, he leaves it to their own choice, inasmuch as he who after proving what is best goes back to compulsion, seems as if he did not trust his own statement. So he's saying, look, it's a choice. You want one, choose it. You want the other, choose it. It's not about sex, point number 17, but the cares of the world. And laying down the definition of a virgin and her that is not a virgin, he names not marriage nor continence, but leisure from engagement and multiplicity of engagements. For the evil is not in the cohabitation, but in the impediment to the strictness of life. That's a really interesting twist there, right? It isn't about the sex. It's about what is getting in the way of my relationship and my spiritual growth. Okay? And this is what he's saying. He, look, St. Paul, yes, he was celibate. Maybe he understood the temptations, right? It's true. It's a huge burden and a huge passion that we're struggling with. And it has to be done free will. And it, it's not to be taken lightly. We, we, we know all of those things. And so when we can make a choice, and because I think this is why maybe it works easier during Great Lent, because we're already of the mindset of this is Great Lent and I'm doing more now, right? Again, because we're voluntarily choosing something for our relationship with God. Okay, that's the issue here. The issue is not whether we're forced into something. It isn't whether we're having sex or not having sex. It's whether or not we're focusing on God. Okay, that's the key. So, now, normally, Chrysostom here would launch into some kind of moral teaching. I've been doing the Bible study using Chrysostom now for... Acts, Romans, and now 1 Corinthians. This is only the second time I have found him not launch into a teaching. But tonight is for a different reason. Look at what he says here. And I'm going to show our life application on the screen. Now, if we have passed lightly by what he says of virginity, let no one accuse us of negligence, for indeed an entire book has been composed by us upon this topic. And as we have there with all the accuracy which we could, gone through every branch of the subject, we considered a waste of words to introduce it again here. <laughs> Wherefore... Referring the hearer to that work as concerns these things, we will say this one thing here. <laughs> In other words, <laughs> I wrote a whole book on this. Go read that. I'm not going to talk about it now. <laughs> I think that's got to be the best way he's done this. So I found that book. It, you cannot buy it in English. It, it exists in some... We, I, I've, I found it through a couple of connections. Someone's doctoral dissertation was to translate this particular book into English. It's like $150 per copy. Um, on Virginity by St. John Chrysostom. Now, if you're watching online, on the study guide, there's a link on the On Virginity. Someone has gone on YouTube and recorded himself reading that English. Okay? It's 117 pages, I think. I have received permission for you guys and only us if we want it. I can make copies of it. I can print it and make copies of it because I have it. I have it um, but because it's copyrighted, I can't do that. I can't offer it to everybody online, but I can make a couple of copies available here. But you can, if you want, go listen to somebody read it. You can find it in Greek. It exists in Greek. The original Greek is available online to read in Greek if you want, but the English is not available online to read for free. 
You can order a real copy, and the, the, the university that this person did their PhD will print you a copy and send it to you. But I think I found it for like 150 bucks or something like that. So, um, but this is the most creative way Chris Thomas said, I'm not talking about it. I've already talked about it. Um, so here we are, centuries later, we don't have ac easy access to that book. But if we're interested here, I can get a couple of printouts for you if you want to read that. I did not bring them tonight because it's so many pages. I don't want to waste the, the printer and don't want to waste the paper if it's not something that interests you in terms of reading, okay? The so. video, just the video is three hours and 39 minutes long. <laughs> but you don't have to watch it all in one sitting. But it is, <laughs> it is somebody reading, reading the English translation that this person did for their dissertation. I cannot vouch for the accuracy of the English or whatever, but uh, it is out there available for, for, to peruse. So that brings us to our send-off. Okay, so every, every Bible study we bring something that's going to send us off, you know, between our next, remember our next Bible study is in November. So here we go. We must remain pure. Here's Chrysostom's final words for us tonight. We must follow after continence, for he says, follow after peace and the sanctification without which no one shall see the Lord. Therefore, that we may be accounted worthy to see him, whether we be in virginity or in the first marriage or the second, let us follow after this that we may obtain the kingdom of heaven through the grace and loving kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that last part there. Whether in virginity or in the first marriage or the second. Now remember, this is Christism in the year 385 that gives us a hint, right? The church has had this position of compassion, right? So even 385, there was second marriages being referenced by St. John Chrysostom. Okay, again, not the ideal, but it happens. Okay, but, but the idea is we have to remain pure because the focus is trying to get ourselves to where we need to be for our salvation. Okay? Just, I want to make sure that I give the correct date for our next Bible study. November 1st is our next Bible study, okay? Then the week after is Election Day, and then, we'll, then we have a good se several weeks where we'll have Bible study again, all right? So, for those of you watching at home, God bless you, and don't forget to live a new life in Christ. Be Transfigured is a production of Be Transfigured Ministries in cooperation with the St. Nicholas Greek Orthodox Cathedral in Tarpon Springs, Florida. We depend upon your generosity to maintain our ministry. You can make a safe online donation when you visit our website, liveanewlifeinchrist.org.